Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to Rick Shields Golf Show podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Rick Shields. I'm here with the co-host Guy, and we've got a fantastic guest on today, Mr. Phil Kenyon. Thanks for coming on. It's episode number 105. Is it? Yeah, believe it or not. Okay. I don't know if that's a good number or a bad number for you, but I quite like it. <laughs> Phil's not asked, good, really. Yeah. Good, good for our listeners. Um, we're going to dive into your background, your life. You are one of the, well, if not the world's best putting coach. Do you ever go, do you ever kind of like flex that a little bit or not no, really? It makes me feel embarrassed actually. <laughs> <laughs> Something about it. I don't know. It's kind of cringy when people say things like that. I think I would be having it tattooed everywhere. I know, I'm talking cheese here. <laughs> yeah. I'd have it on the side of my car. I'd have it, I'd have it everywhere. <laughs> well, it's weird because we went to a McDonald's the other day and Rick pushed the front of the queue and went, I'm the number one subscribed golf YouTuber in the world. Move peasants. Get out so the way. it's a different oh. approach. <laughs> I didn't say peasants, I said commoners. Oh yeah, sorry. sorry. Get out of the way. Um, so I thought we'd kick things off with a quick fire. Guy's got nine yeah. questions for you. Yeah, so as I said, we're going to d- deep dive into your life, your incredible um, story, you know, what you do day to day, I think is just mad i think people will love hearing how you've got to where you are but before we do that phil we've got um quick fire questions so they're really simple you can one word answer them or if you want to elaborate that is entirely up to you so first one nine holes or the driving range me personally yes you personally driving range interesting one we normally that really get surprises me for a putting coach <laughs> is it just because you want to get away from putting um no i enjoy practice right yeah so um, if I had a choice, I think I could hit more balls in that period of time and be more constructive with my time. Okay. And I'd look at it from a pragmatic point of view. Wow. But I'd encourage everyone to go play. That's Last a, question then, a twist no. on that. Driving range or putting green for you? Driving range. <laughs> this is interesting. Uh, number two, Netflix or YouTube? Netflix. Oh. Are you a big Netflix fan? Hate YouTube. <laughs> 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 just downright hates it <laughs> um, i'm guessing obviously you're on the road loads you must have completed everything from netflix to amazon prime the lot do you know no i haven't i mean i've actually only just got into netflix over the last year really yeah so we had it for years never watched it i don't really watch a lot of tv yeah um and then obviously i had a bit more time on my hands watching tv so got into a few shows and um netflix amazon prime stuff yeah so i watch the odd show on that, but other than that, it's basically sport. Yeah. yeah. Odd bit of news. And then... I feel like your Netflix viewing would be quite factual-based. Um, I don't feel like you're watching The Housewives of Cheshire. No. <laughs> no, La- no. I reckon you've watched The Last Dance, Michael Jordan. Yes. Yeah, that was good. 
F1 was good. I've oh, I've seen heard that about that. I've seen, seen that one yet. I didn't like F1, and then I watched that, and then I found myself watching races now and, and reading up on it. Well, like, isn't the rumours they might be doing like a golf yeah. version of this yeah, kind of Netflix show? Yeah. Who do you think would be good for that? Top of your head. Who would be, be up for it? Oh, it's got to be It's got to be Poulter. He's got to be from... He'd be good, actually. He would be good. Because he's quite insightful, isn't it? You'd love someone like Poulter, Bubba Watson, and then someone like on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, maybe, who's kind of just a journeyman who's been out there forever, like a Steve Stricker. Mm. Just to see, like, the contrast of different people. Yeah. But that, that'd be something to look forward to. Well, this question we've asked... These questions we've asked other people. So this one, I thought I knew the answer to, but you've thrown me already off your first one. Driving or putting? And you can interpret that how you will. So if it's the one you... In- well, in fact, which do you enjoy the most and which is most important to the average golfer's game? It's a tough one, isn't it? Really? Way to ask the tough questions. <laughs> I honestly didn't expect you to even give this a moment of thought. So, I mean, uh, for me, putting, mm-hmm. obviously. But <laughs> driving, I mean, statistically... the You've got to drive the ball well, and you've got to put well, haven't you? And the contribution to the game, I think, is would be fairly equal. I don't know statistically off the top of my head, but yeah. like putting accounts for twenty to thirty-five percent of a, a PJ Tour player's um, performance. So, thirty-five percent of a PJ Tour win is contributed by putting. I don't know what it is for a driver, but it's significant. I mean, they're both important, aren't they? I mean, so does it change from tour level? So it, does it change from a tour player's perspective, driver versus putting, compared to an 18 handicapper, driver versus putting? I don't know, no. to, to be honest. I, I feel like, well, I, I always think of this analogy, right? Let's say Tommy Fleetwood, okay? Yeah. You took him with an 18 handicapper around the golf course. Yeah. Would he shoot a lower score if Tommy took all of his driver shots or if Tommy putted for the 18 handicapper and the 18 handicapper would hit all the other shots? I think if Tommy drove for them, they'd probably score better. I, I would That's kind of I say, thought, I would think I so statistically, yeah. because the odd 18 handicapper is going to roll in a monster, as will Tommy Fleetwood, obviously. Um, but, but they're like, never hitting it 3.30 down the middle, are they? Well, there's the so middle. many penalty shots, isn't there, off the tee? Yeah. yeah. So you're going to avoid penalty shots. I mean, 15 yards makes a massive difference. You yeah. know, that, I mean, that's a one shot per round, so of course. Tommy's hitting it a lot further than 15 yards so I would say yeah driving off the tee would be the big impact for the but on the flip side if you're a tour player and you said right I'm going to guarantee you 10 yards longer with every tee shot you have or I'm going to reduce your putting on average by one shot around well one shot you go putting because I don't think 10 yards contributes to one shot doesn't so there we go interesting no real answer but it's interesting to talk about first app you open in the morning Gmail. Yeah, fair play. Um, okay, this is a good one. Augusta, 18 holes, but you're on your own. Or 18 holes at a local muni with Tiger Woods and two of your friends. First question, have you played Augusta? No. I feel like you, you've got a better opportunity than most to play it, right? Um, I'm not sure about that. But it's been a while, I've still not played it. <laughs> That is a really good question. I would say Augusta. On your own and just, just loving it. Well, I don't know Tiger and I don't have many friends, so <laughs> <laughs> I may as well go and enjoy Augusta. 
um, would you would you find yourself obviously if you played on someone like Augusta and we I want to come on to that topic in a bit we spoke about it briefly so this morning if you don't obviously you won't know this because you listen to the podcast I actually had a lesson of Phil Kenyon the world's best putting coach this man right over here and uh, hopefully he's going to help improve my putting stroke um, I'm going to ask you a question there about Augusta Greens yeah. if you did go and play Augusta for example would you spend just hours on the greens like would you or would you just play golf i mean obviously you've walked augusta many times right yeah yeah i've been lucky enough to get on the course because during the tournament week uh coaches aren't actually allowed on the course you're not allowed anywhere near it is that um, right yeah i didn't know that so literally it's player and caddy that's it no way no you've got to keep outside of the, the ropes but I've, luckily i've been there um, prior in the weeks prior with players and then you can get out on the course you can get, walk yeah. it get on the green and get a feel for you know the, the the place so i don't know what my question was would you yeah, find yourself spending a lot of time on the putting green if you if you actually played it i'd probably find myself spending a lot of time in the trees <laughs> um, <laughs> but i think and i think people would find themselves spending a lot of time on the greens because they're difficult so you'd be hitting a few putts yeah. um but yeah i mean it would be a fascinating place it is a fascinating place and I think you couldn't help if you were there hitting a few extra putts and going and hit a putt to that particular pin position. Yeah. I mean, that that's the sort of great thing about Augusta is when when we put it on each each year, we kind of know what's coming, don't we, to a yeah, certain extent. Exactly. We know the pin positions. We know the kind of difficult putts. Yeah. We are, you can almost read the break yourself, can't you, You know, through the TV. So, yeah, I, I'd, I'd spend a lot of time on the greens trying to replicate certain puts or right. certain chip shots around the green like you get you go to the back of the 16 you'd have to you know you'd have to and you'd have to go in the trees on 13 where mickelson hit his shot yeah. from and you'd have to go in the trees on 10 where bubba hit that ridiculous shot from for in the playoff like you've got to go to these spots because yeah. i like the little tourist attractions in a in a big tourist yeah. attraction really yeah so that's the good questions. We've got a couple left. That was the good questions out of the way. You can't let the questions be good. That's the, the, now the rubbish questions. But Rick is known, obviously, as a golf YouTuber, but he's also a, a massive... A fantastic badminton player. Well, he's a massive sports enthusiast and a massive, massive football fan, which we'll come on to. But he's also, as of late, as he says, become a huge badminton fan. And he used to quite like playing darts. So if you had half an hour spur, would you rather have a game of darts or a game of badminton? That is a terrible question, but <laughs> I like the fact you put some thought into the answer. <laughs> I'm just, I mean, I dislike darts. Um, dislike yeah, it? Yeah, I find it boring. Have you seen a lot of these kind of studies where it says like darts is the like the hardest sport in the world? No, I'm not buying that. I don't believe that. I think it's golf. It's too stationary. You're just throwing something, aren't you? Yeah. Like, it's too, it's calculated, it's measured. I think it, snooker's hard. It'd be a bit like your putting green I went on today. From standing from that spot to the hole, if you did that all the time, you'd get outrageously good at it. That's a bit like that's a bit like darts. That's what I'm trying to get at. If darts were so hard, you wouldn't be able to have fifty pints and do it. <laughs> Maybe golfers need to have fifty so, pints and do it. On that basis, badminton. 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 The last one. Um, again, Rick's become a massive football fan as of late. Huge. He um, huge support Rick. This, big, this season a, is United. And this season, <laughs> yeah. Depends. At the moment, I, I'm in a transfer window of my own. You're in Aston Villa at the minute, aren't you? Either, either Aston Villa, Newcastle, <laughs> anyone anyone that I think might do well. Anyone in the news? <laughs> Who do you support? You're a Liverpool fan? Liverpool, yeah. Good oh, man. Buddy, I'm sandwiched between two Scousers. Oh, yeah. you Liverpool? I'm a Liverpool fan, yeah. 
good result that the other week, wasn't it? It was a very good yeah, result. Five, five. Rick texted me afterwards because he watches the games. Yeah, I said, like, "Oh, right. well, well played, mate. You, you beat us today, you've fair got, and square." You've got no chance now. You've lost your sports director. Oh, someone's listening oh, to Talksport <laughs> on the way here as well. He got eaten on Talksport yeah. on the way here, actually. Yeah, very good. Well, that was the um, so welcome anyway to the yeah. podcast. <laughs> uh, you probably thought it was going to be more golf than this, but on a serious note, um, you, you as as Rick said, you are renowned genuinely as the world's best putting coach, but. How did you start playing golf and how did you get to where you are now? Um, so, my mum and dad play golf, the members at Hillside, and um, I think I first sort of showed a bit of interest when I was sort of eight or nine and then toyed with it, didn't really get the bug and then I think it was when I was about 11 years old, one summer, really got into it and then that was it, I was hooked. So as a kid, played all the time, uh, junior member at Hillside, Loved it. What a place to be as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. It was a. It, well, it is a great course, but it was. It was a real. It was a happy place for yeah. me. Like as a kid, we had a great junior section. Um, you know, it's a it's a good golf club. So yeah, really enjoyed my time playing golf there. Got reasonable at it. And what, um, what what was reasonable at that kind of time frame when you were a junior? I think I got down to about plus two when I was eighteen. Nice. So, which was a decent handicap then. Mm. I mean, it's two a penny now. They're all like plus six, of plus seven, they are. aren't they? Yeah. So you're, pl- a, you're a plus two in old money. In old money, yeah. yeah. How, how we remember it, yeah. Back in the day, yeah. When you had that low trajectory ball or that, yeah. you know, went a persimmon and <laughs> yeah. everything else. But it meant, yeah. Um. So yeah, got down to about plus two. Played England schoolboys stuff like that. So I was playing fairly decent competitive level golf, um, and. During those years, I had a family friend called Harold Swash, who you may know. Um, well, we do, but explain to the audience who might not. Yeah, so H- Harold, I mean, he's he passed away in 2016, um, but he was one of my dad's best friends, and Harold was a world-famous putting coach and designer of putters and training aids. So he, he had like a um, you know, great reputation within the game. But he was my dad's best mate. That's crazy. You know, they were really good friends. So, and Harold was always sort of um, helping out the juniors and spending time with people. He was a very, he was a good guy to be around. So I got to know him, spend a bit of time with him. And uh, I'd help him yeah. do certain things. I'd like carry his equipment on a on a clinic over at Mere Golf Club, stuff like that. I'd do certain things. And I used to caddy for him. He used to play. Um, really? Yeah. Is he a good player? Yeah, he was. Yeah. He, um... His claim to fame was, I think he qualified for a couple of European tour events as an amateur when he used to have pre-qualifying. Oh, wow. So he could play. Um, and we got into trouble once, actually, at Hillside because we had a game. And the game was for 50 quid or 10 caddying jobs. Okay. <laughs> and I won. Right. So he paid me 50 quid. But it was deemed to be gambling on the golf course. So Uh-oh. we got into a little bit of trouble. Uh-oh. But that was the kind of guy that he... And he'd have probably... Knowing Harold, he'd have made me caddy for him ten times, um, but he was happy to pay up. I feel like yeah, I don't, I don't feel like that was a fair kind of bet, really. Well, it was back then. A fiver for caddying was good money. Oh, really? Okay. We're talking old money here. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> old handicaps, yeah. old money. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, so I got to know Harold. Um. So I was always kind of around putting and and his coaching stuff like that. Um. Eighteen, finished college, went to uni. Um. And I was a bit undecided about what I wanted to do at that time. But uni was a good option for me because um, 
I got to do sports science, psychology and sports science. I was always interested in that side of things. And it, what it uni did you go to? Went to Liverpool. Okay. So I could I stayed at home, which gave me an opportunity to carry on with my golf and have a bit of sort of um, that security and everything. So I did that, um, enjoyed it, you know, really good. Um, yeah, Liverpool's a great city, isn't of course, it? yeah. And I think I did my undergrad and I stayed on and did a postgrad. In, uh, I did an MSc in sports science because at the time I was still thinking, you know, I'm going to use my degree to, in, in some way. And just a quick one here then. Would, obviously playing off plus two at 18, did you have any aspirations to like kind of well, turn I, pro? I, I did. At that time, yeah, definitely. But I was unsure. Right. Because, you know, I didn't think I'd be good enough. And I also valued my education. Yeah. So for me, going to uni, staying at home was an opportunity for me to continue with my golf, get an education, see the best of both worlds, I guess. So, but I was still kind of like, when when I did my undergrad, I was still like, you know, still didn't know what to do. So I stayed on, did a postgrad. But then when I finished that, I decided I'm going to have a go here, turn pro. And what, what, how old are you at this point? 21 or something? Um, Or maybe a bit older? Yeah, so... 23 something like that I think so it's like five years at university yeah so yeah four years I had a year out in between after college yeah uh, in between uni which I forgot about <laughs> it's a long time ago well that's the whole idea of a year out isn't <laughs> yeah. it? that's the whole idea of a gap year you're supposed to like enjoy yourself and forget about it so um yeah I turned pro basically after I did my master's and played mini tour golf for right. a number of years I think about five six years and during that time I needed to try and earn money as well. I mean, I got some members at Hillside were fantastic with me. I had some guys that that sponsored me and helped me out. Um, And, you you know, low-level golf like that, it's it's hard. You know, you're not playing for much money. You've got a lot of expenses. So I was also trying to earn money. And uh, I would basically help Harold. Right, yeah. So that kind of, that tie came back around again. Yeah. And then I, I played, really didn't, kick on as what I would have liked to and I think the one thing that I think I did well looking back was I gave myself a time frame of like listen if I've not hit a level by here then you need to look at something else do you think that sometimes missing in kind of golf at an early stage because in a lot of other sports you'll get told you're not good enough really if you're a football you're not getting picked for the team if you're in other sports you just you it's quite blunt you're not good enough in golf you kind of yourself have you have to do that yourself to a certain degree because you can carry on playing professionally if you yeah. want to so the fact you put a time frame on it do you feel like that was kind of your way of going right that's my deadline that's what i've got to get to if i'm not there at that point i'm not going to make it for me when i look back i'm glad i did that yeah. because i think it's easy to continue and you could easily get end up in your mid-30s and you've not gone anywhere with it and it's a tough game isn't it but it's you've all the thing is with golf there's there's always that romantic idea or and you see it where people you know in the I think there's a guy on the PJ tour this year who's got his card in his early forties. Oh, is this the guy that was um, English guy? Yeah, I can't remember his name now, but he'd been going through David a lot of the Skins. other tours. Yeah, yeah, but he'd been through loads of other tours for a long time. That's yeah, mad. Yeah, yeah, but finally got his. I mean, unless you're playing PJ tour. Or European tour, yeah. you're not really making much money. Yeah, um, but he he did it in his early forties, so I didn't, you'd never knock anyone. But I mean, I've been fortunate. 
if I look back at my career now, you know, I'm happy with the career that I've had and the opportunities that I've had and how I've been able to provide for my family. And yeah. if I look back and think if I hadn't made that decision, what would I be doing? Of course. So for me, I'm glad I gave myself a time frame, didn't make it. And then for me, then I looked elsewhere. An, an interesting question in that time frame when you were trying to make it as such yeah. and you were playing all these mini tours, like, were you good? Were you, were you were you a good player at that time? Not really. When I look back, I was crap. What was your, what was your strengths? Well, I would say like um, I was steady. I wasn't very long. Yeah. Um, but I would I'd be fairly accurate. Decent iron player. Good around the greens. Good putter. Decent putter. Yeah. Yeah. I would say it was a strength. But I had a lot of I had Harold helping me. So, of course. Um, yeah. I would. And, and was he working with many players at that time, Harold? Yeah. Yeah, he, he had to, you know, over the years, he's worked with a lot of players. I mean, if you go back to, like, generation of Faldo, Langer, Woosnam, you know, he, he worked with a lot of those guys. Wow. And then more more recently, Patrick Harrington, he worked with him. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he coached a lot of, you know, top players over the years. And I don't know when this came in, because one thing you kind of didn't mention a minute ago about Harold was that <clears throat> one of the reasons why he also became much more popular and famous yeah. because of his line of putters yeah the yes putters yeah um and did that when did that come into the time frame was this before you went to university or afterwards when did when did yes kind of come about just trying to think now so i i was i was still playing when yes was starting to get some traction right so, um, so it was fairly new when you started yeah working with a little bit more with it yeah yeah so I, I can remember sort of the early designs and yeah. the evolution, you know, of that product. And it blew up. It went yeah, crazy. Yeah, it did. I think um, we were talking about yeah. before, but I mean, at one point, I think it had like second largest market share in the UK. That's crazy. There was, a, it was a number one putter on the European tour for one event. Yeah. So they had, I think in South Africa, it was the most popular putter used. Wow. So they, they had, in a short period of time, they were very successful with it. Um, and then when I when I packed him playing and started coaching, that was actually a big um, leg up for me in that within a couple of years of just sort of coaching full time, yes, wanted to um, take the product on tour. Yeah. So they were looking for a tour rep and Harold said to me, do you want to do it? Like, there's, you know, maybe about eight, eight to ten events you could go to. Um, take the product out and what they wanted to do because it was kind of they had like this unique selling point around the grooves and ball roll what they wanted to do was to provide a service a fitting service rather than just like handing out putters mm -hmm. let's go and fit people educate people around the product so Harold put my name forward to the company and the company said yeah it's a perfect fit so I went out and, and sort of did that and it was good for me because the I knew, I knew some of the players I yeah. played golf with at junior level or professional right, level. Throw some names out. People like Ian Garbutt, who was yeah. playing then, Mark Foster, yeah, um, guys like that. And this was you were going out on European tour. Yeah, this. yeah. So I went out there, and you, you, you're there, you're fitting players, and you're spending time with players, you're learning from players, yeah. And they're also then picking your brains, and they, they, they appreciate that you're coaching, and it, it just it was. It was a good experience for me because it kind of put me into a certain environment that I learned a lot from and built relationships and then started to help people. And that was a, yeah, gave me a real leg up in terms of my coaching. So quick one. When you realised you 
you gave yourself a deadline of playing. Yeah. Did you already have coaching in mind? Yeah. Was that natural where you were going to yeah. go into? And when you stopped playing and started coaching, did you go straight into putting coaching or everything coaching? More or less. I mean... Like, did you do your PGA at that yeah, point? Yeah, I did my PGA, yeah. did it at, at Hillside. At the, at the end of your playing Yeah, my final year. Such. Yeah, final year I enrolled on the PGA. I was doing that at Hillside. I was teaching at Hillside. Yeah. So Brian Seddon was a pro then. Yeah, yeah. I was doing Enough. that under Brian. Yeah. Um, started a YMG program, which was Young Masters Golf, so teaching the kids that had that going. Yeah, yeah. Um, teaching a few of the members, but then also working with Harold. But I'd say within two years, it was very quickly became just like 100% putting. Right. Um, because you had a passion in it. Like, or yeah, I had a, you, I had a passion and had an opportunity. Well, yeah. the opportunity, isn't it? Yeah. I had the opportunity and a passion. Yeah. Um, you know, Harold had, um, like I say, a great reputation and there was an opportunity to help him there and, and develop um, some of the stuff. So, yeah, it was it was a combination of both. Quick question. It's kind of not off topic massively, but obviously, yes, putters, they were all named after women. Yeah. Is there any story behind any of these women? Or was like, was do, you like, want the, do you want the official line or the X-rated line? Whichever you want to give us. <laughs> Both, ideally. No, they were... So the, I don't know if you remember when Retief Goosen won the US Open. I do. So he he won it with a particular model. Yeah. And um, I think the model had us like, and it was named like a number, or it was an uninteresting name. Now I don't know if I'm probably allowed to say this or not, but I think there was at the time some discussion in terms of a commercial agreement, possibly with Retief, whether they were going to sort of. Um, you know, name the putter after him or something like that. Anyway, it fell through. Okay. So they named it Tracy, which is named, well, Retief's wife is called Tracy. Ah. And then from that, they just named the models after significant women that were involved in the company in some way. No That's way. Cool. So like... Um, well, there's an Emma. Emma, Tracy, which is Harold's yeah. granddaughter. Oh. All right, wow. Callie. Yeah, I'm not sure about Callie. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other off the top of my head. Was, uh, I had Tracy too. I remember just loving that putter so much. Yeah, so nice. I, I think I might have had a Cali now. I've just said that, but yeah. but so that's that's the story behind it. Yeah, they they were basically named after significant women um, in the company or associate with the company, and then obviously the, the, a lot of different models come out. So whether then they just end up being ladies' names, uh, you know, not entirely <laughs> sure. But, not sure yeah. where they came from, but yeah. yeah. that they, they take me back to my junior days, even yeah. looking at them now on Google. I think it was like 2003, 2004 season. Has been, that was when golf was my absolute life. Yeah, And I remember that they, at the time, they weren't silly money either from what I remember. No. I feel like they were about between 1,800 quid. Might be a bit of a blurred memory on that, but that's what they were definitely cheaper than your Odyssey and stuff at the time. And they were just, everybody had them, the C-Groove technology. Yeah. I mean, I never, I, obviously I didn't go into the technology that you have today, so I couldn't see it massively working, but I felt like it did. The wind grips they had, the magnetic head covers. It really, looking it, it back now, the sad, but, yeah. The, the yellow and the black, it was quite like... The grip was, um, I forget now who came up with that decision, but at the time you didn't have different coloured grips and yeah. it kind of stood out. You could put the CV on and you knew instantly... I recognise that. It's funny, isn't it, how in golf, like looking at a certain club from an era can really take you back to like yeah, a time. Yeah. There was a Tiffany, Elizabeth. Tiffany. They were great. Yeah. And that, as, as now, people might see Betanardi have made a very similar one for Matt Fitzpatrick. That's been all over the... Um, Is that Tracy 2 kind of shape? Yeah, so Matt used um, 
a Tracy two and he's used it since he was fifteen. I fitted him for that putter when really? he was fifteen. No way. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. So I've known Matt and coached him since yeah, fifteen. Wow. Um so he, he he's used that particular model up until last year. And um he, he, he was sort of basically sort of replacing it. I mean, obviously clubs don't last, do they? Did they get damages, they get knocked in transit? And um, he was ke- he kept on having to try and replace it, and the, it just became an issue. Um, and ultimately, uh, a manufacturer basically replicated that putter for him. Right. Yeah. I bet I've got a couple spare in my in my storage. I think I'm going to go on eBay out. and try and get one. Yeah. So well, I think he was buying buying ones off eBay eventually and getting That's them refurbed. Crazy, isn't it? But they never they're never the same. No, you, know, no. you, you know, they don't sit. They sit differently. Yeah. And it's ex- his exact one that he wanted from when he was fifteen. So does that t- tie us in quite nicely with? Was that a process that you did out on tour, or was that separate again? In, w- so when you fit Matt with that putter, no, Matt came to the studio. So we had this studio in Southport, okay. which was actually above the distributor for Yes Golf, right? Um, because that was. Within in within the UK, Harold's son-in-law sort of ran the distribution. Yeah. So we had this putting studio above, um, yeah, for want of a better word, a warehouse. Yeah. And then yeah, Fitzy came for a lesson. Oh And um, you know, we used to do a lot of fitting in. Uh, it's an integral part of any lesson. Of course. And uh, yeah, fitted him for his first C groove. That's crazy. So. You're 23, 24, you're out on tour now, fitting for yes and providing a service for the players and kind of building that side of your new business, your career as such. When did that kind of start to cross over towards you starting to help players? Was that a very natural point from there? Or did did you have to almost move different levels again? Yeah, so I think... um, Every year sort of rolls into one, doesn't it? But I'm I'm in my late sort of twenties here now. Yeah. Um. And the first few years, yeah, I'm you know big responsibility in terms of the tour stuff. I'm doing my coaching outside of that, um, back at home in Southport. But then I'm building a sort of bit of a reputation, a bit of a client base, um, out on tour. And I remember there was a point where a few guys actually said to me listen, we'd like to formalise this. I need to pay you for the help that you're giving. Because you're there and you're just helping players. It's part of like your if effectively your role, building relationships, helping players. Of course. And, that and, was and you're just trying to make them put well with that putter. Yeah, they're using the product at the time. Yeah. You know, but fitting can often progress into coaching. Of course it can. It can blend. So, and Ian Garbutt was basically my first client. And right. it's quite funny because Ian now is one of the tour managers for uh, Callaway. Is he so really? I, yeah, so I have a relationship with Ian now because I work closely yeah, with Odyssey and Callaway and Ian was one of my first mm-hmm. clients and he was like, listen, you're helping me, I need to pay you for it. So I went to Francis Ricky, who's the CEO of Yes, and I'm like, Francis, I'm, I've got these clients, um, they're wanting help and they want to pay me for it. You know, what What do I do? Are you, are you happy with this? And Francis was, as long as you do your job, then you can do as much coaching as you want and, you know, arrange what you wow. need to be. So talk that was about, great. Talk about an yeah, opportunity yeah. again. So that was great for me. So it gave me that freedom and, you know, um, made sure I did my job in terms of yes, golf. But then, yeah, started working more and more with, with wow. players. And, and then that ultimately that kind of snow, snowballed to a point where I couldn't do um, both of those roles. So I basically relinquished 
the job has tore up just yeah. to focus on my coaching. And did you, sorry, go on. did you did you find that as soon as you started, because obviously your coaching at the moment have been local people at the, the golf club, members, maybe some beginners, maybe some juniors. It's not a whole lot of pressure coaching people of that ilk, typically. It's nice and enjoyable. As soon as then you've got Ian paying you money, hard cash to be that person's coach, did you find there was a shift in, in responsibility, almost in pressure on you as such? Not really, no. That's good. Yeah. I mean, the the one the one thing that I would say is early on in my coaching career, because of Harold, I was exposed a lot to good players. So I was in at the deep end in that sense. And yeah. there's a, I think whenever you're working with a better player, there could be a sense of responsibility because it's easy to mess them up, isn't it? Um, so I never felt like that because I'd yeah. always been in and around working or in and around people of that, that level. Yeah. Um, and I think everyone's important, aren't they? Whether they're a, someone new to the game or, or a 10 handicapper yeah. or whatever. So you just focused on trying to give the best lesson. But I never felt any additional pressure in that way, which is good because really you don't want to. Yeah, it's really You don't want to feel it. Like I remember... Very, Brandon Grace was one of the first ever tour pros I, yeah. I met. So he, he moved over here to Manchester. He's working yeah. with like ISM. And he came over here, I think, with Charles Swartzel and Louis Houston Hazen at the time. And I kind of formed a really nice relationship with Brandon. I really yeah. got on with him, played a bit of golf with him, but dead casual. I was never kind of helping him as such. And I moved to Trafford Golf Centre and he came to come and see me. He wanted to hit some balls. I had a flight scope. He wanted to get some numbers. And he kind of just said, um, Rick, do you mind videoing my swing? I'm going to send it back to my coach instantly i was like oh my god like i'm videoing a swing of like a tour player like yeah and i wasn't, I wasn't even giving him any advice i wasn't helping yeah. him but it, it for me because i probably did go from beginner junior the local member to boom up and coming tour star one of the best players that could you know obviously yeah. we know now he's gone on to be a, a world beat and one of the best players um that's played i was like oh my god this is like a huge level of responsibility yeah. but i never that was from a to Z very quickly, where yeah. you felt like you'd kind gone up that graduation over a period of time, which yeah. is nice. Yeah, that's not to say that you don't have experiences where you you feel nerves or you feel responsibility because yeah. I have. I could go through them, but at the time, I never felt like oh, I'm in at the deep end here because yeah. I'd been in at the deep end earlier on, probably. Yeah. One, one of the questions I have that kind of baffles me, and, and before we're at your studio, where there's so much kind of technology and there's so much kind of going on, is that like. Obviously, the putting stroke looks quite simple. In theory, probably the best strokes are the most simple, I would imagine. But how do you become like an expert in the stroke? And how do you continue to learn? Because I guess like, something like the piano, it never changes. The piano is the piano. But like with the introduction of technology, certainly in the time that you've been out on tour, you know, like the introduction of like Sam putting lab and all this stuff, that we're learning so much. Like how, how do you get the knowledge that you've got? Like how, do you just constantly have to be reading and learning? Or is part of that you actually doing kind of, experiments and stuff yourself to, to gain that knowledge I don't really know to be honest how do you, I mean it's something that I've just lived and breathed for over 20 years so like every day you're working on being a better coach whether it's you know reading up on something or whether talking to another coach or studying biomechanics or whatever it is you kind of like you're just engrossed trying to be better at your job don't you and you accumulate experience, professional knowledge, craft knowledge over a period of time. Um, but it's just accumulation of lots of little things. But it's, I don't know, I never really thought of it like that 
Um, but ultimately, if you've studied an area for 20 years, you're going to have more knowledge and experience if you studied it for a, a week. Yeah. No, it's like I've, I've been around golf since for over 20 years now. And if I went to go and see a town's bad, a, a normal golf coach or a putting lesson, I imagine most things they would tell me I would not necessarily know, but wouldn't sound too unfamiliar. But before some of the things you talked to Rick about, quite high level stuff. Mm. Yeah, like the knowledge you, I mean, I'm guessing, obviously, you're a great coach. You could dumb that down if needed for the right client or whatever. But the thing We that had to you, dumb it down for a bit. He's a bit thick, isn't he? So. I'm still here, by the way. This is the grip, <laughs> this is the head. Uh, but some of the things that you were talking about, I'm like, it, it, it's, it's madness. It's just so, yeah. like, high tech and it's it, it's crazy. I suppose the part of a, the challenge of a coach is doing exactly what you've just said, is, is almost taking all the information in analyzing it so you understand the full pattern of, of the puzzle let's say but being able to translate yeah. that to your student in a way that makes them understand it yeah do you have clients that want to know all the numbers and other people that just want to go feel this feel that yeah uh, yeah totally you get you know even even your regular golfer that comes in you can get a sense that they're more analytical or you know even just talking to them about what they do for a living and that they're going to buy into certain things and then you get the other guy you think well I've just got to keep this simple here yeah but certainly your professional clients you get both you know both ends of the spectrum where some guys you have to be really careful about what you tell them and then with others you can be as technical and or as specific as 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 you want to be and you know that they can process that and use it and then go out and play with it so in terms of your time on tour, I'm guessing it kind of snowballed from having a couple of clients that like you said, and, yeah. and now obviously you are where you are. I mean, would you be comfortable saying who you, you now coach, or is that something you wouldn't want to talk about on the podcast? I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm happy with okay. that. Well, yeah. it'd be great to hear who you coach now, and then kind of like what your, I don't know if you have a typical working week, but what it actually looks like to be out coaching these superstars. Um, well, newest client would be Rick Shields. Um, <laughs> no biggie, no biggie. Top of the list. No, so so current sort of clients that you know the viewers would know um, would be Tommy Fleetwood, Justin Rose, um, Henrik Stenson, Matt Fitzpatrick, who you mentioned, uh, Lee Westwood, uh, Gary Woodland, um, Francesco Molinari, Chris Wood, David Horsey. There's some. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Other European tour-based players. Um, names there, isn't there? Well, major winners, world number ones, Ryder Cup players. Yeah. I mean, you've literally got them all across the board there. And, all, and interestingly, obviously with people like Gary Woodland, a mixture of places where they from yeah, like America yeah. and, and obviously like someone like a Henry Stenson or Justin Rose they live in America now as do most of the tour players to be honest don't they really like it's not just people that you've kind of learned and worked with from the European tour level it's really gone obviously global to some of the best players that's, that's ever played really how long who's the longest client that you've had then would it be Matt would you say David Horsey really yeah so I First met Dave when he was about 18. Right. Um, and he must be in his early 30s now. Right. So he'd be one of the longest standing clients. Fitzy would be up there. Of I course. Mean, I, don't, I don't know how old Matt is. Probably I think is. he's my age. I think he's early like 30. 30s. I think he's about roughly 30. Is he? I think he's old. I'll check. But he doesn't look it. I always I still look at Matt as a, like an 18-year-old. How does... I'm, obviously, all these guys are professional athletes. He's always 27, my bad. Yeah. Um, like, they're obviously professional guys, super switched on, which is why they've got to where they've got. But how does it work for you balancing them all? Like, if one of them's having a swing fault, and, or not swing, a stroke fault, or not putting well and they want to speak to you, but you're busy with, like, another client, how, how do you, like, balance that? And how do they never get, like, annoyed that they want to speak to yeah. you today and you're busy or whatever? Like it, That can be difficult, trying to sort of manage your workload if you're at an event. But for the most part, the, the guys are really good. They appreciate that and... You, you just try and organise your day and your diary, so you'll be doing that maybe in the days prior. Um, and it, you kind of just get through each week somehow. Mm. But it, you need an understanding from the players. Um, you know, they, if they wanted, they could be difficult if, if, you know, I want that particular time and that's it. But I think they get it and um, they're flexible. And you're, you're trying to help them. You want to do your best by them. So they kind of work with you on that. But yeah, if you've, if it's a busy week, it can be stressful trying to make sure that you see everyone and, and um, they're not having to go out of their way to see you. you know, they're the important ones at the event, aren't they? Their preparation and the timing and the schedule is the most important thing. So it can be tricky. But So I'm guessing the, that like a... Sorry, go on. No, but I was going to say, for the most part, I work with a good bunch of guys yeah. who are, you know, who work with you, not against you. So I'm guessing the most time you're going to have most players at an event is like a major. Yeah, the it, Open or the Masters or something like it, that. It is now, yeah, yeah. Um, it never used to be like that. I, I do remember being in Abu Dhabi once, and I had thirteen players at the event. Oh my god, is that the I, most? That was the most. I was <laughs> like, oh my god, what am I doing here? I'm not going to get through this week. And then I managed to, um, which was ridiculous. Um, wow. But then, like now, it's you know, 
people play different schedules, so you, I wouldn't, I would never have that many players at an event. But then when they all come together, don't they, for the big events? So yeah. the you know the WGCs or the majors is when you could have most the you know all your players there. So it does make for a busy week. And do they almost like book like a lesson slot with you as such? Like I make them book online now. <laughs> Just I send them an email link. <laughs> and you, do you mainly do that through, you don't have to, again, go into specifics, but through player or is it through managers or is it through caddies? I get their people to talk to my people. <laughs> <laughs> no, just you just WhatsApp, don't really, you? Yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. Message. I'm there Monday. Are we catching up? And then if you send it all off at once, <laughs> first come, first serve, don't you? That's crazy. Um, but it's just like organising your diary like on any other day. But most tournaments, because I know we've talked about this before, you're only there really Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, aren't you? I'd be there more now. Oh, really? I mean, it used to be that I'd be there practice days, but I'd say as, you know, my role's changed a little bit and, you know, my responsibility's gotten greater than, and you also, you travel further afield. Of course. You can't just pop to the US for practice days. Yeah. You, you know, I find myself that I'm at events for longer. So, yeah, I'll, you know... A lot of times, mm. be there at least till Friday or most of the week. So how, in, a, on, sorry. in a year, how many weeks are you away, roughly? Oof. I don't want to think about that. How many I, weeks are you at home? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, um, I'm. I do between twenty and twenty-five tournaments. Wow. Okay. Now they're not always full weeks, but then I do have other. Um, activities and other aspects of my job which also take me away as well of course so firm firm out of time How, overseas how's it normally work then like i'm just looking at the world rankings now i'm gonna pick well i'll do a john round number one like say he has a bit of a bad spell with his putting and he he wants to start seeing you as a putting coach i'm guessing again it will vary from player to player but what's the normal kind of process like would you kind of meet them for a, a meeting and have a couple of lessons or do they just like I guess they don't become a client instantly you've got to kind of gel as people and as, as your kind of philosophies fit with how they like to practice and, and learn and stuff so how does that process you know you get a phone call tomorrow from John Ram's agent or whatever how, how does that normally then progress to them being your client it's not that di- different to what you know you'd expect really mm. is at some point the decided that they're struggling with the putting or they need an opinion and um, either the player or an agent would reach out and say can I get a lesson and you'd meet with the player you'd um, give them an opinion and and then you'd leave it with them and then they're either going to follow up with that or they're going to you know do something else so and something like that that first let's say meeting is that normally done in private away from media prying eyes where gossip can start or is it often on just a putting green at a tournament it could be either really really yeah i mean a lot of the times it is at at an event um so it is in the public yeah. or other players can see or, or whatever but i mean ideally i like to try and see a new student away from an event ideally at the studio where you can get all your data get your analysis you've got the time to go through stuff you don't feel pressurised or rushed, and they don't also don't have a tournament to worry about. Of course. So, yeah, I, I would prefer a student to come and see me in the studio, get our stuff, go outdoors, whatever. Um, I mean, I, I remember the first time that I actually ever saw Rory. Rory came to Formby Hall. That's okay. That's which was crazy. a little weird. And uh, I remember thinking at the time, because of you've been to the studio, and 
that w- the window that overlooks studio basically it, you can see through the well, it's, it's frosted now but it, they did not used it to be wasn't frosted. at the time no but we we put some temporary blinds up because thinking if rory comes in and then people are in the shop yeah. and they can see it just like watching going you're gonna end up you know so yeah um so there's an element where you you, you are wary a little bit about privacy of so course. we put some blinds up for, for when he came um but yeah ideally get them away you've got that privacy you've got that time yeah but very often you're not afforded that chance and and um, with schedules and stuff like that it, you could be asked to give an opinion to someone at, at an event i feel like i've got so many questions but just no, one I more I, I feel like a mind are always about like I, go, I don't know but like let's just say again you tommy Fleetwood's coach you obviously are and tommy was having an amazing run he's putting great hitting it great and he's gets to world number one which obviously I'm sure you would be delighted with and you'd obviously have played an integral part in doing so. And let's just say again, John Rahm is then world number two and his putting's bad. That's what's let him lose that number one position. Well, that's a good question. And, and John Rahm comes to you and says, Phil, you're the best in the business, which obviously you are. I want some help with my putting. I want to get my world number one spot back. How does that feel for like you then? Like You've obviously got so much interest in all your athletes, clearly, and Tommy is killing it at this imaginary time. Do you then take on that world number two in John Rahm or do you speak to Tommy for how does it work because if you give John that advice you will give him and then crack on to be number one and Tommy's not anymore he might be upset how, how do you balance it all yeah it's a good question it's a judgment you'd have to make at that time mm. and and um I guess I guess the nature of sort of golf coaching is being it's not like tennis where you have like one coach looks after a player and they have a contract with them, and then that's they, it. That's so. Like in in golf coaching, it's been commonplace for a coach to have uh, different players. So it would not be uncommon for that to happen. I guess it depends on different things. I mean, it's the capacity, isn't it, to be able to work with however many players at that level? Because there's a lot that goes in and around working with a world number one, then working with guy that's five you know rank 500 mm. so just naturally there's going to be a lot more in the demands and the schedules and stuff like that so could, could you physically work with the number one and number two in the world it might be very difficult yeah. to do that um and then there is the personality aspect with a player you he you know if they're very competitive do yeah, they want you of course with? so I mean, for, I'm fortunate I've never necessarily been in that position and it would be a difficult one mm. and there'd be a lot of things that you would need to consider in that um, and certainly what would be at the forefront of that is the relationships that you have already with, with players. Um, but I know you know Tommy's the kind of player that he'd be more concerned about me than he would about himself. Really? Like, so he, if he thought that was a good opportunity for me in my career, I don't know. I mean, that that's a feeling I have with Tommy, but oh, I'd also, nice. you know, try and put my guys first at the same time. It's quite, it could also be quite... But like political, couldn't it? Like you've Could really be. got to please a lot of people a lot of the time. It it is. It, it, yeah, I mean, I, I I said this early, but I've been fortunate. I think that I've worked with some decent guys. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that you think, oh, that could be a bit dicey, but they're fine with it because they're decent people. So, but there's a lot of things that you think, oh, that could be a bit spicy if that happened. Or have you ever turned out a client? Yeah. Have you? Yeah. Because you like them or because, because you didn't have enough time or <laughs> um, combination of things really yeah that's interesting yeah 
<laughs> Don't ask should, who. Should we, should we um, can't ask who. Should we jump jump onto an email? Let's first? jump onto a so quick email. So one of the things we obviously would like to have you on, Phil, and, and we've got more stories yeah. to come. The the, the the insight you've got is class, and you can tell us as Rick and I got so many questions. But I've, I've made no notes on questions today because oh, I just, just knew just, there'd be so many coming it. naturally. Um, but we have a couple of features of the show we do every week. Normally it's just me yeah. and Rick chatting nonsense, and one of the features we have is called Dear Rick, where people can email in Rick a question about anything. Agony well, ant. Yeah, exactly. Theory, now, they can be from all sorts of different things. This one's a bit of an equipment one, which isn't massive to do with putting, but I think we can tie it in nicely with the putters. And I think I'd love to hear your um, take on this. So it says, Dear Rick, uh, and they're always anonymous, by the way, love your content and the banter between you and guys. It's a nice start. Um, with the continued emergence of these direct-to-consumer companies from brands like Ben Hogan, etc., how do you feel this will change the pricing of golf clubs and the major brands? Let's be honest, the argument to fit in is not all that strong because the vast majority of golfers will just buy Titleston Ping and Callaway Irons from a retail store simply because of the brand name. Will the quality of irons for cheaper... Will the quality of these... Um, that's not quite... Basically, he's saying, will brands start having to lower their costs to compete? And what's the pros and cons of buying these direct-to-consumer brands? So, again, he's talking more irons. Yes. And how... Well, can... well, should we almost spin it on putters almost? Because it's the it. same story, yeah. isn't it, really? Broader. Um, for me, just off off the cuff, the advantage of direct-to-consumer is mm. typically it's cheaper because yeah. you're not paying a middleman. The downside is that you don't get to feel it, touch it, swing it, move it, pra- like have a fitting with it. That's obviously the biggest downside. Um but I think as a, a lot of people you mentioned there, a lot of people will go to a store and buy off the shelf. It's still very common to happen. A lot of manufacturers or companies are trying to not do that these days, but they will do. I, even I've got guilty of that sometimes. Where what you're saying with direct to consumer, that's obviously just not an option. You can't ever get custom fit. It would be interesting to hear on kind of your take on putters though as well, or just equipment in general. <sighs> I switched off halfway through that. <laughs> like, do, do you think, who's bothered writing that? I'll oh, get some good ones. Do, do you think fitting is an absolute 100% necessity for every golfer? Not for every golfer, no. Because some people are that bad. You know, having a perfectly fit golf club is going to make very little difference. Yeah. But I think at every stage of development becomes a point where fitting will help. Um, so I think there's going to be different things for different people. Direct to consumer is going to help some people because they don't need to be fitted. They, they just need access to some mm. clubs of, of a good value. Yeah. But you're always going to get the person that's going to really benefit and would want uh, access to fitting and, and a service or um, like higher value goods. So, do you yeah. ever get annoyed by brand claims? Certainly, the putters. Like before, when you were giving Pete that uh, Rick that lesson, that putting lesson, that like you were showing how you know a degree here, whatever there can make such a difference. And that's down to the person and the putter, how they control that putter. But yet, you can hear a brand saying this new alignment. Yeah, area, whatever, it absolutely does my tits in, <laughs> if I'm honest. And you hear it all the time. Uh, you know, claims from manufacturers about X, Y, Z. And the reality is it, it often doesn't make that much difference in terms of performance. They'll, they'll claim, oh, we, we can improve something by 20%. 
And really, that that twenty percent improvement is insignificant to overall performance mm. anyway. But it's a great marketing claim. Um, or they'll they'll talk about optimizing certain things, which that optimization doesn't need to be like that anyway. It doesn't work. So there's all sorts of claims, um, which I think are BS. Yeah. But they make great stories, and you know they you know, create attention or whatever. So, yeah, I do find that a frustrating part it's of It's great for us golf. reviews. Like, sometimes it is the story that we can kind of latch on to and go, oh, that could be quite interesting. Let me yeah. let me review that idea or let me resu- yeah. review that claim. Um, obviously, you work closely with Odyssey, yeah. Callaway. Did they ever bring a product out you're like, oh, I'm not sure if that's going to work? <laughs> Certainly the putter market. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, you, you'd be... Stupid to believe that the that every every product you bring out is perfect. I yeah. mean, I, the the good thing, the good relation, the one thing I like about my relationship with Odyssey, Sean Toulon, Joe, Luke, all those guys is they respect my feedback. Yes, and they ask for it. They, they, they don't want me to sugarcoat stuff, and um, so you know, I, I I give them honest feedback about it, and and they can take it on board or they don't. Of course. Um, and I think they do a pretty good job in terms of trying to improve and develop stuff. And they'll hold up their hands and say, yeah, that range wasn't good enough, but how can we improve it? I yeah. mean, everyone in every walk of life, what we do is not perfect, but can you get better and can you produce something that's you know continually evolving? Learn from the mistakes. Learn from the mistakes, It's yeah. funny though, isn't it, with putters? Because if you look on the PJ Tour, the European Tour, you'd be, you'd be hard, and someone might comment an example now, you'd be hard to find a, pro golfer playing for a living who's using a drive that's more than like four years old wouldn't you really most of them are going to be playing the latest or maybe the last model because even that half a mile of an hour of ball speed year on year it's worth having but yeah with putters and Tiger's obviously one of the most famous for this he's got a putter that's 20 years old whatever it is yeah technology has massively changed in putters and it will continue to do so but people who are playing for a living still often play with an old like you said Matt did Matt Fitzpatrick an yeah. old piece of kit that just works for them do you think that's the confidence with the putter as well is, is just as important as technology and trust. Well, I think it shows you that there are a lot more skills and other factors involved in which influence the performance on a putting green than what it does you know, off the tee. Mm-hmm. So I think technology has more of an impact off the tee than what it does on the green. And you all and the, you know the, there are in, you know technology has improved on the green, but the mar, you know the marginal gains were there can be significant gains. If you look at how driver technology has improved over the last 10, 15 years. Mm. So, you know, you're always going to get someone that puts really well with a certain putter that will use it for 10, 15 years because even the best technology is not going to actually improve their performance that much because there's so many other factors involved. Do you think if you could have a time machine now and go back 20 years, but have all the kit you've got in your studio, and you got given, like, Nick Faldo, you could make him, in the, or, or, or Nick, uh, Greg Norman, whoever, even better than they were, and how dominant they were back in the day, with what you now know from science and stuff? No. Like, I think... I, I, I was naive enough to think when I was younger as a coach that, oh, if I get a chance to work with him, I'll improve him. But you never know the dynamic until you get, like in with that student until you get under the bonnet of the motor you really don't know what's going on so it's easy to look at someone and think i can improve that's him. quite interesting but until you get the chance to work with them you really don't know mm. there's, there's so many variables so i think it'd be naive to think i oh, love 
I could I could go back in time. I'd improve him, or if I yeah, could yeah. work with him, I would improve it. You'd like to. I'd you love to go back gel and work with Nick yeah. Faldo. He was yeah. a boy, boyhood hero, or work with Sevy or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that'd be fantastic to go back now to like you know my younger days Spend and look at those iconic. Yeah, one of my just a sorry, yeah. but one of the best experiences I've had was I built a putter for Sevy. Oh did my you really? Days. Yeah. Yeah. How so did that come about? So. What was the year that Tiger won the Open at Hoylake? Oh, Two, five, was it? Was it was as late it? as that? Um, I'll have to Google it. I feel like it was, but I might... Oh, no, um, that's wrong. Oh, five, was it? Andrews. So I was still doing stuff with Yes at the time, and Seve played in the French Open that year. I think it was his last Open Championship that he played in at Hoylake. It'd help if I could I could spell. Um, oh, six, I oh, think. Six. Yeah. So yeah, he picked up a um, a yes putter, Tiffany, um, in in France at the French Open. This is Seve picked this up a putter. Yeah. yeah. So and in particular, I think he there was a few things that we needed, like loft and lie changing. I can't remember the exact spec, but he also wanted the white sight lines kind of covered so that it was black. So he, and the Tiffany had this kind of like multiple layer sort of circular um, lines through this middle section so I had to black all those out right and then he said I'll be on the range so I went and did this and then I walked down he's just on the range it was late on in the day and he's got like people around him and walked over and gave him this putter and uh, yeah so that was my claim to fame no I shared a few words with him but for me like when I grew up Seve was my hero so just even to be able to say I built a club for him that was like, cool yeah. did he use it yeah he did yeah did he? He, he used it in the open that's awesome do you remember the, the putter that he had, the STX one? I don't. Like a rubber, weird shape thing. It was oh. Tiffany was fairly sort of similar shape, so I, I think... I think what a Tiffany looked like. You know now. what, I feel a little bit gutted that I was just outside the Seve era. Because like you... Yeah, you missed out. Well, you're saying now, how, well, you're not, this, you, you work with the best golfers in the world on a day-to-day basis. And like, I could see that in your face. So people that are listening, if you want to watch the podcast as well, in your face how chuffed you were about that story about Seve yeah. even speaking to him and we had David Cannon yeah, who's with that book just behind you all about Seve and like I bought the book yeah people like that he's yeah. an absolute god and I feel like I know that but I didn't really watch him enough to feel that connection I wish I did because everyone that has met him or played with him or speaks about him it's I feel like from the sound of things you had that amazing era where you caught the, the glimpses of Faldo Norman Seve, yeah, and then blended so nicely into Tiger, mm. yeah. Where I feel yeah. like me and we Guy were Tiger came, Goose we came and in with VJ. Tiger. That <laughs> yeah. was it. We came in straight yeah. at Tiger, and everything before that didn't exist. It does now, obviously, as we've grown older, and you kind of look back at it. And I go, am good oh, about that, though. Yeah. I would have li- loved to have been. I might watch some more videos and stuff about Seve. I feel like I need to be better educated. Charisma. I've got an interesting story when you talk about Tiger. So, Tiger played. I think it was ninety-seven. Was it or played at the Lytham? Oh, sorry, at the Open at the Lytham. Well, he won the Masters in 97. Right, so obviously. it's 96 then, yeah. probably. Okay. So he plays, yeah. Uh, did Tom Lehman win? Or Dov- I think I that was 90, I'm sure my brother got an autograph of him in 96. So I'm I'm still playing amateur golf then. But a mate of mine at the time caddied for him at Lytham. My oh my called God. Richard Noon. He was a member at Lytham. Tigered for caddy? He, he caddied for Tiger. Tigered for caddy? Yeah. <laughs> no, he, so he caddied for him. Yeah. And um, <laughs> obviously, like, everyone started to know about Tiger at that point. And the following week, we were playing North of England Youth in a tournament. Um, and we're talking with 
with Rich and we're like, so how, how did you carry for him then? And Nooney always thought he hit the ball miles and yeah. allegedly that like, tiger hit it miles. Well, how, how did you carry him? Like, what do you do for clubbing wise? I just told him what I did. <laughs> <laughs> that was his. That was his claim to fame and story. But <laughs> and he, and he awesome. hit it twenty yards big every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, like I, I, I remember that Tiger era coming in, wow. and then when you think, yeah, what he's achieved over his, his lifetime, and you've witnessed it from the the start to finish. Yeah, of course, it's incredible. Where like I missed out on the Jack thing, really. I cut sort of the end of it. I yeah. remember watching. Yeah, because that's another Masters. area you could have like yeah. caught yeah. up on really as well. Yeah. So I can't appreciate how good a player he, yeah. he was, but obviously being able to witness Tigers but then even go back one more it's like Hogan and that kind of era as well so it's like you yeah. can have, you can always, you're always a bit envious of the the bits you it's missed like out footballers, on footballers like my dad is obsessed with like George Best yeah. he yeah. says the best he's ever seen it's like well surely Ronaldo and Messi are but then yeah. people are saying Pele and it's whatever era you're in I'm sure yeah. and the reality is it was Kenny Daglish anyway well, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to do this email as well I've got a few very well, quick, I love this one I've got a few quick questions right Yeah. who is the best putter that's ever lived Oof. I don't think you can actually answer that question because you can't answer it objectively through stats because... Is it like Ben Crenshaw, is he? You, you could argue. You could probably say likes of Crenshaw. Um, There's one I'm thinking of. I don't know, it's like the older guy. Um, oh, I'm going to have to Google it. God, in your opinion. So you could put people like Ben Crenshaw, Brad Faxon, Brad Faxon. Luke yeah, Donald... You know, in the more modern era, we've got some stats over a period of time, you know, like since Shotlink was introduced, that we can more objectively measure what good performance is about. So there's certain names that will, will come up. But then it's like saying who's better than uh, between Tiger Woods or Jack Nicholas or Ben Hogan. You can't compare. So I think you can only judge people in terms of uh, were they the best in the era. Yeah. Um, and then also... Just because someone was number one on the stats over a course of a year doesn't mean they're necessarily the best putter because they might not have played in all the big tournaments. Yep. You know, so like being able to compete the big tournaments and put well on you know, in the big events, there's a, you know, that's that's important, isn't it? So if I was gonna pick someone that was gonna hold a putt for me, who would it be? It's probably Tiger Woods, isn't it? More because he can do it under pressure. Yeah, as well. great, he was a great putter. He was the best putter of of the great iron players. Yeah. So if you look at in his era, you know his approach play was awesome, and then but he was also a very good putter. So you hit it close, and then you you, you convert chances. Yeah. It's a good combination. But then also like the things that he did under pressure. Of course, seventy second hole in a tournament. Yeah, like he um, held so many. Tory Pines. Uh, yeah. And, you know, Bay Hill and yeah. all that. Yeah. So that's, that's an have you seen list. Brad Faxon's list he made? He might have seen this on Twitter. I did. I did see it. Do you yeah. agree? So just for the listeners, he did it. Brad Faxon didn't put himself in, but he did a top ten putters ever. Yeah. He did it number ten. I'll go reverse. McElroy number ten. Bobby Jones, Billy Casper, Alazabal, Nicholas, Bobby Locke, Tom Watson, Seve, Ben Crenshaw, and number one Tiger Woods. Do you yeah. think that's a pretty good list? Brad's a lot older than me, so he probably played with us. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's tough, isn't it? I mean, yeah, like, I, like people talk about it? Bobby Locke and, and that. I mean, I have no idea. Yeah. Like, statistically, so, Matt Fitzpatrick is ridiculous, isn't he? Isn't he, like, one of the best putters yeah, of the modern game? I would I would say there was a... 
there was a um, someone's got a, a website stats website which accumulates a lot of data and, and Matt was up there in modern times yeah. putting wise um, and his data I mean Matt plays a lot in Europe and like historically the stats haven't been great in Europe in terms of publicly accessible so people will just derive a lot of the data from the PGA Tour yeah but if you compare I mean Matt collects a lot of his own data but if you look at his um his data across both tours that he's collected over a period of time, then yeah, he, like statistically, he would be one of the better putters. Um, there's someone else I was going to say then. Like, also, what's mad? We've had all this chat and not even spoke about Spieth. Yeah. Well, mm. yeah, great. Because like how, like, I know yeah. Faxon's put that list together, but I think if you looked at head to head, Spieth versus like someone like a McElroy, he's obviously, I think he's done some work with Macaranti, but Spieth has got to be one of the greatest putters, certainly from that 25 30 range that, that's kind of ever lived. I mean, he literally holds outrageous amounts. Yeah. And and can you really judge someone like midway through their career? Does it not have to be yes. like when the career has come true, to true, say, true? What? So I think I don't like making judgments like that, really, personally. Before we go on to this, one mm. more quick question. I've got two more. <laughs> that was a perfect well. way. I'm going to link that to making judgments. Um, who, which golfer? Yeah. Do you think would have dominated more if if their putting had been VJ Singh? Simple answer. So if if VJ Sung VJ Sung VJ Singh sunk more pots. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. yeah you seem to you seem to be pretty like bang on with that. Well, how That's many stats. majors did he win? Was it? Is it one or none? No, he won the he Masters. Won, he, won, he won the Masters. I'm going to have a look he won now. The, he's won a few. I feel like we should know all these stats more. You're not chatting to no laying up now, no, by the way. Yeah, you're to me and guy. Yeah, <laughs> well, but I, like, I don't claim to be a PJ Tour nut. Um, oh, no, he's won three. He won 98 PGA, 2004, and then he won the Masters in 2000. I remember the Masters, to be fair, but I forgot about the PGA. So he's won three majors. And had a second and third at the other two. Yeah. And, it, and he, a lot of that was in his 40s, wasn't it? Well, yeah, he's 58 it, um, now, so yeah. He, um, I remember he won at Akron with a negative strokes gained putting, which is very rare to do. Normally the winner like gains about five and a half, 5.2 shots per event. Yeah. And he won it with negative strokes gained putting. Oh my goodness. Which is yeah, very rare that someone would do that. But I would, I would have a guess at if he was you know if he put it as well as Jordan Spieth or Jason Day or some of these other you know top players then he would have won a few more tournaments because he was one of the few guys that actually really challenged Tiger mm, yeah, wasn't yeah. he yeah yeah definitely like major wise definitely. you know um so. he used to have never compromised putter I feel like yeah he did sure he did black and green he also used one of the ones where um the red dot at the back what are they called Seymour Seymour putter as well I'm sure right. he did um interesting story about him <laughs> So um, I know this story from one of the caddies that used to work with him, but uh, he had to, he got everyone around him to address him as the best putter in the world. So when he got to work in the morning, the caddy had to call him the best putter in the world. The no. cart boys, at, I think, wherever he practised, you know, the people that would go, they had to call him as the best putter in the world. So, yeah. That's I a bit love like that. you. <laughs> it's just like me. Well, don't they always say don't don't eat dinner with bad putters? 
or yeah, there's, yeah, they're yeah, saying is like, yeah. don't if you if you're at a tournament, don't go and sit on a table of of golfers who have had a terrible putting round because all they're going to whinge about is, did you, did you see those greens, greens yeah, today? Yeah, that yeah. bloody lip out I had, this, that, yes. and the other. Like you're going to surround yourself with all those negative things, really. Good for this now. Good for that. Right. So, um, Phil, another one of our new features we've got is confessions. So golfers writing in with confessions. Last week's was the first ever one, and a guy confessed to cheating. And then we have the, uh, we've, we've now kind of named it um, forgive or condemn, I think yeah. we're going with. So we can either forgive them or condemn them and then we can like give them a punishment. So last week I gave the guy six months of shanks. And, and I gave give him bad him? bounces for life. So it's, Yeah, so you, we want you on this as well. So it's a little bit long. but I'm quite happy to chain him and beat him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're the most qualified here. So, okay. Uh, myself and my playing partner have a huge confession to make after paying extortionate green fees due to not being our, uh, members at the local course. We decided to chance our luck and Photoshop a booking confirmation email. This managed to work for multiple rounds due to nobody coming round to check our booking. We were playing for free and life was breezy until dot dot dot. The dreaded day arrived. There was nobody at the first tee, so we teed off as normal with our Photoshop booking saved in our camera roll. After both double bogeying the first, things would only get better, surely, as we were walking down the second furway until in the distance we saw a faint appearance of a buggy heading towards us. This was the moment when you eventually would come. It was time to lie through our teeth and show the Photoshop booking confirmation. After confusing the member of staff with our fake booking, he couldn't seem to work out why we were on the system. After multiple calls to Clubhouse, um, he was starting to get suspicious. He zoomed back off to Clubhouse to investigate and said he'd be back. He was on to us. Once he was out of sight, this was our opportunity to escape. We proceeded to sprint up the fur with our trolleys, pushing them, pushing through the players in front, only to make uh, a quick exit out the back of the golf course through the main road. And after running down a big hill, we got uh, with our trolleys. We sneaked back into our cars and escaped unnoticed. And we are yet to return to the local course. We truly regret our actions, and we will never ever play golf without paying green fees. This has taught us a big lesson, and the fear of being hunted down and trying to escape in the golf course was not worth it. I'm sorry, Rick and Guy. So, so that was from yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who plays that. So, Rick, what's your thoughts on this? And you, Phil, what um, can you forgive them or do you condemn them? And if so, what's the what's the punishment for that? It's thieving at the end of the day. Forgive them. <laughs> I did not like that's, that's not as bad as cheating. <laughs> cheating was bad. Cheating's very Ooh, cheating's bad. Cheating's bad. He. Um, I think to some degree we've all possibly everyone's done it pulled Come a bit on. of a sly one yeah you know whatever that may be whether it's whether it's a green fee or you play on with your mate and you don't sign in as a member or what, whatever it may be I'm sure there's been a few sly ones I have but I've never gone to the extent of Photoshop that, I think it. that's the bit that they've got yeah. premeditated uh, correct premeditated <laughs> <laughs> green fee uh, theft. avoidance theft looks like it is it's theft so you let them off. I'd, I'd you forgive them. Blind eyed for that one. Yeah. So just so you if know. you're if you're the owner of that golf course, and they've not, done you, I'm out. not encouraging it, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll turn a blind eye. Okay, that's fair. So you, you've been forgiven by Phil Kenyon. You'll be happy yeah. to know. There Rick Shields. Um. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll forgive him. That's all right. It's not the end of the world. I'm going to punish them. Um. But it's going to be light punishment. I am going to say. Um, that for the next six months, when you go to a new golf course and you do pay your green fee, um, what can the punish? I've not actually got punishment. You always yet. double bogey the first. Well, you already do that. So that's already, yeah. already. Um, you're gonna get stuck behind a slow group of seniors who won't let you through, and it will rain on the fifteenth hole every time Fair you play. Fair dues. Fair dues. For six months. Two more questions for you. Phil. Good. I've got more. 
two more. Because <laughs> I think these would be good stories. Can you name me the time that you were most nervous as a golf coach? Driving to the final round of the 2016 Open. At Troon. Troon. Yes. So, so you um, were obviously coaching Stenson at the time. Yeah. So I remember um, waking up and thinking, shit, <laughs> I feel a bit nervous. You know, when you get that the butterflies. That, and I, I used to get it when I used to play. I yeah. never really sort of got it coaching. It Was this because it was literally a two-horse race? Well, he, he was... You go in to warm up a player who's about... Who's going to compete... He's in a final group competing for a major. But it wasn't even a final group. It was a match play situation. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, one of one or two of them was going to win. Um, but I think even... Even if that wasn't the case, I think I would have felt nervous because, you know, last group out, major... Um, it's the pinnacle, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. Really? Was this yeah. your first major victory? Well, I'd worked with Darren Clark when he won, right? But I, but I wasn't there at, at the weekend. Ah, okay. I, I'd gone home. I was watching it on TV, and it was slightly different scenario where the, you're there, so <laughs> smoking you smoking a cigar <laughs> and opening a bottle of hiding champagne. behind the couch. Um, but you know, you, you're there, and and um, you kind of witnessing it all at first hand. You could easily say the wrong thing. So yeah, I was just—I do remember being particularly nervous driving down to the club, and then obviously when you get there, you kind of get into it, don't you? And then when Henrik comes, he—he he, he doesn't look nervous, no. so you kind of like you—you you you can't look nervous no. at that situation, no. can you? No. no. So I had elastic bands around me, waterproof trousers, <laughs> and just ploughed on with the job. But and he—he he was great in his warm up. It was like, yeah, you—you you knew that he was ready, and I remember because he puts first, so. He, we went. We did some putting. Then he went to the range, and I thought, "I'm, I'm done now. Really, I'm <laughs> going to go and watch." So I remember going and watching, standing back. I wasn't, you know, Pete Cow and his coach was there, but I was like back, basically behind the stands, kind of watching. Yeah. And um, he just like flushed it in his warm up, and obviously went on to win. So that was a. Was a Do you ever in that situation as well? Kind of like, let's say he's, he's putting amazingly. So he's been on the putting green with you, and you're like, "Oh my god, he's literally." everything's on a on a piece of string yeah do you ever sometimes go to the driving range in that situation which you probably rarely do these days you're on the putting green mainly praying and hoping they're actually going to be hitting it well as well because you can only do the bit that you can do you're just praying that you stand there and he's flushing every golf shot under the sun well the thing is with warm-ups is that it doesn't always correlate it to whether they That's play true. well That's so true. i don't think you ever sort of look at it like that um uh, I share a few clients with Pete Cowan and we'll always have a bit of a joke where if I if they're leaving me from the putting green to the range, I'll just say, don't hook him up now, Pete. <laughs> and he'll do the same <laughs> to you. And he'll do the same to me. So, But no, I mean, you, you just, you, the warm-up's the warm-up, isn't it? Yeah. And then um, and then even if they warm up great, it doesn't mean that they're going to go play well. So you don't really attach. I don't think as a coach you attach too much to it unless there's something that's a particular concern that you might need to react to but um it's more than anything it's about getting them mentally ready prepared to go out rather than like it physically be perfect another question yeah tell me the time when you celebrated the hardest like what was the what was the biggest party Ryder cup 2018 yeah yeah oh that, that was mint yeah so i mean i've 
like the I had the the, I don't know so how Paris. I made a plane the following morning. So yeah. Paris, yeah, obviously just won. Tommy and Molinari, both your yeah students at the time as yeah, well. Yeah, so Henrik and Justin Rose. Oh my god, so there's four, and they've all killed it. Obviously yeah. Molinari and Fleetwood that week just played incredible. Yeah. Um, that famous put a Tommy on was it sixteen? He kind of yeah did first, the squat with morning. his with his yeah. nuts out. That was yeah. that was a proper. I mean, that was well, more, that, huge at the moment. time they were three 0 down, weren't they? And they managed to. I was there on the Friday. I can't quite remember all the scoring and stuff, but mm. that party after would have just been ridiculous. Isn't yeah, it? it was amazing. It was a. It's probably one of the best weeks of my life in uh, like a sporting work context. Um, I mean, Thomas obviously was the captain. I've worked with Thomas over the years, so I've got a good relationship with him. And um, it was a great sporting spectacle, anyway, it was. wasn't it? With, it was you know, really like, was. The, like the first tee that the the weather was good the, the the crowds but obviously the the team how the team were how thomas had set it up so you really felt part of the team because i've been to a few rider cups and the first one i went to you felt really detached away from the team as a coach as a coach yeah, yeah. you really didn't have any involvement you could literally get to the putting green or the range when you were alec you know when you had to but then beyond that you were nowhere near them and then Darren Clark, I would say, changed that in 2016 where you went and you were literally part of the team, in in the team room, in the locker room, Brilliant. had access to the players and you really felt it was different. And I think Thomas took that and and um, he ran with that and, and, and it was slightly different because we had slightly our own, the coaches had their own team room yeah, and you were allowed in at certain times and stuff like that. But that was great because you still felt like you were really being looked after and, and the players that team were really good it, it, and it's such a good experience to be part of to see how they interact with each other on weeks like that I bet um, so it's just it was just a great week and obviously we won they had a party afterwards um, which was incredible so and, and everyone just got absolutely larrapped <laughs> is, is it the biggest party because it is one of the only time in sport, or golf, shall I say, where it's a proper team collaborative effort. Like when Stenson won, I'm sure you had a few drinks. It'd have been nice, probably in the clubhouse, quite kind of secluded, not many people. But obviously, a Ryder Cup win, you've got players, caddies, partners, managers, coaches, coaches, managers. Yeah. Like it's a busy room. Yeah, of everybody in that room thinking, I played a little part in this. I think so. I, I played. A, yeah. I, I, we've done it. We've done this collectively. Where when it's a major win, something like Stenson, it's obviously Stenson, his wife, his family, etc. A couple of coaches, and that's that's kind of it. That's the party. Yeah, I mean, it's just a different vibe, isn't it? Yeah. And I think when you put like a lot of people. And it's an event of that magnitude and the dynamic of the whole week. It does elevate everything. Um, but, I mean, what I would say about the Europeans is the second best party I've been to is the one at, at Whistling Straits. The one that's just been? Yeah. I mean, if you'd have walked into that team room on Sunday night, you'd have thought that would have been the winning team. Really? Yeah. Because although they got beat, they... They really played as a team and they really yeah. enjoyed it. And they were so passionate about doing well. They just didn't play well. And the Americans were an unbelievable team exactly. on form. Yeah, But every player gave it their best. Harrington was an amazing captain. Like what he did and how he was with the players and the, all the staff. You know, it's easy to be critical after the event. And you could go back and look at other 
Ryder Cups and think, oh, God, did he really play him in that pairing? Yeah. But, but they won, or they got beat, but the other guys won, and they won the session. So it's discarded now, isn't it? But when you lose, then all these little things are magnified. Of course they do. But for me, he was a great captain, and the camaraderie in the team was unbelievable. And on that Sunday night, it was like they'd won. It's amazing. To a point where Finno, I mean, you know yeah, Finno yeah, for Tommy, he, he popped into the American team room, <laughs> and he's gone in, and allegedly he's gone, whose funeral is it? Honestly. <laughs> yeah. Which it was, apparently is very quiet. And then ultimately some of the Americans end up coming into the European room. So you had like Xander, Tony Finnow, um, Speed's Caddy, Brilliant. a few others. And they, they really, it was a great night. It was no a great way. night. So it doesn't always have to be about the winning, That's you know, nice. to create those things. But I think there's something unique about the Ryder Cup, which comes out on a Sunday evening. And basically the Europeans party better. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> in the simplest sense. Yeah. Um, recently, it's been a big talk, a big rules change, and yeah. it's going to affect you enormously. Yeah. Can you can you dive into this a little bit? Kind of what, obviously, I, I saw your tweet. You weren't happy. Yeah. Well, Elaborate on this because I'm not massively clued up. Okay. I don't I'll let Phil, uh, Phil, Phil will be better at describing it. So they next year, they've basically uh, brought in Effectively, I think it's like a local rule which will allow them to ban um, the use of green books. Okay. And this is just PGA Tour? Well, this is, I think, um, agreed across Maine, like uh, the main worldwide tour. So okay. it'll be um, European, I think, PGA. So they're going to ban the use of green books and also within yardage books, the information that you can have on, on a green. So now nowadays, the greens will be scanned prior and you can buy or they don't buy they get given a, um, a green book which will have a lot of information the gradients the direction of the slope you know color-coded charts so you get a lot of information which most people use badly or don't know how to use you know i don't think it's that much of an advantage or takes away people's skill that much as to what people could believe it does a lot of people will be better without the use of green books because they don't use them that well. They're quite, it's difficult. And also it's a skill to be able to use it well, to be able to interpret that information. You know, what is a skill? Is it just something you're physically gifted yeah. at or can you be, can a skill be like something mental or something that you've developed of through course. process? Doing, doing so, a crossword a skill, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. So some people have become really skillful at yeah. using that information. Well, going back to your point, playing the piano is a yeah. skill. You learn it, don't you? You're not born with it. Yeah. Exactly. So you've obviously got that rule, and that's fine. I, you know, if the, if that's what the governing bodies want to do, and they say you can't use green books, then that's fine. However, where I think they've screwed up is that they've then said that you can't use technology that's going to interpret condition of the green in practice. So, for example, you couldn't use an electronic level to gauge the slope or use a device that would measure the stimp of the green in a practice round or worse on a practice green that same week of the tournament. Wow. And for me, that's where I think they've screwed up. And I'm guessing that's something you do every week. Yeah. So, I mean, that's something that you, I would do with my players and we would use technology to, you know, for them to calibrate the, 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 the slope you know, perceptually or even with their feet to be able to distinguish between a shallow and medium steep slope, one, two, three percent, even measure green speed so that they can 
be able, they'll have systems so they can adapt across different uh, speed of greens. So, yeah, for me, they've taken it too far because what you shouldn't limit people's innovation in practice. You should be able to use whatever means that you've got to get better at, and then if they want to create whatever kind of even playing field, let people then go and play in that playing field. But yeah. Let them explore things, let them be innovative in practice. And if that means using certain elements of technology, then let them do it. Be- because there's other areas of the game where you can go on a golf course with a quad or a trap man of course you can. and work out how much that hole plays downhill, how much the sort of air density. You can use a laser in practice, can't you, as well? Yeah. GP, like a, a bush yeah. well, Was it the PJ or the US? I think it was the PGA Championship last year where you could use a, a laser in tournament play. Yeah, they brought it into tournament play, yeah. A rangefinder. So it's yeah. like so it's, it's bits ridiculous. of it they want technology, yet they want to strip it away from elsewhere. And for, for why? What's the why? I can only assume that they're trying to take away the temptation that people could use that technology on the course and maybe make notes from it. But, I mean, if they want to do that stuff, they could do it anyway. So I'd see no... I don't. I've never spoke to anyone from a, any of those organisations to appreciate why, but I can't see any logical reason as why they want to prohibit that stuff in practice. Like I, I actually would say, if they're trying to div- say it's about well, we're trying to encourage skill or people, you know, more skillful people to come to the forefront. I think it's skill limiting by saying you can't do certain things because some people will be too lazy to bother trying to develop themselves using technology. Other players will look at these you know, marginal gains and work hard and try and become more skillful. Yeah. So you're allowing people to become skillful by ha- taking advantage of the, you know, the technology that's at their disposal. I can tell you're passionate about this. This has yeah. annoyed you, hasn't it? It really annoyed me. But I, one of the things that annoys me is, I think in recent years, the aim, the, the, Putting is an easy um, cop out for them. Let's change this. Let's do this. When the reality of the matter is, that's not really affecting the game at the moment. A green book's not really not bringing people into the game. No. It's not really like a slow play issue. Whereas there are bigger issues in the game that I think the governing bodies are ignoring. Yeah, and choosing to pick on putting. Um, to be seen to be proactive about mm. trying to shape the game in a, in a positive direction. So either you need to bung the greenkeepers a bit of dosh before the week and <laughs> say, "What's that? What's that level at?" Or what's that? I mean, yeah. or, or Phil would be going out at like midnight with like a balaclava <laughs> on, <laughs> like running across with his digital uh, um, spirit level. It, it seems does seem a bit crazy. It seems like it's something that doesn't need to change and they're just changing it for the sake of it just to say oh we are making it harder or we're making it more challenging for the players i can see why they're doing it on i can understand and appreciate what they're trying to do on course because i think some of that feedback has come from the players where they don't want access to the green books that's fine but don't limit how people try and get better off Mm. the golf course yeah I, i don't and where do you where do you go next? Like, why can someone use a quad on the course of in course. practice, but not use a level or another device on a putting green? It doesn't doesn't make sense in that respect. And will it going back to that point? Will it be the putting green, the designated putting green for that week? Don't really know how it's going to pan out. I mean, 
hopefully they they might modify that rule. I don't think it's written in stone and that's what they're going to do. But what they'll do, they'll kind of put these preliminary rules out that are subject to change or they're going to, you know, considering change. And sometimes they'll listen to feedback and then and then adapt them. So hopefully they're going to do that. Because speaking to a lot of players, um, they think it's stupid. Yeah. So. It's crazy. Um, quick plug for your yeah. website. You mentioned it earlier. Yeah. PhilKenyonPutting.com. Yeah. If you sign up now, you get a free gift, eight videos to help improve your putting. Yes. Give the listeners and the viewers just three super simple things that they could do to improve their putting the next time they go and play. Sign up to PhilKenyonPutting.com <laughs> is the first one. What did well, I say? That's right. So right that's yeah, the first yeah. tip. Sign up to PhilKenyonPutting.com. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And watch, number two is watch video number one. And then watch Rick Shields. <laughs> it, it's difficult. I think like putting is a very individual part of the game. So to give like generic tips. Of course. But what I, I see people get, when it comes to putting, they get really tied up in knots. So like go and, go and visit your PJ Pro, get a lesson and try and... Try and get an idea of how you control your start line, your speed, and your read. So look at putting as in, in terms of three skills which you've got to master. Yeah. And technique plays a part in terms of your start line and your speed. But you know, look at it from a skill-based thing and what are the key things you need to do to affect your start line, whether it be aiming the putter better, whether it be developing a better motion in terms of your stroke. And then look at how well you can read greens. I mean, we spoke about it today. I think yeah. that's one thing that's particularly overlooked by the average golfer. They don't comprehend how important that part is. Of course. So, yeah, try and understand what your patterns are around those three skills. It's very difficult to do on your own. Um, so I'd recommend going and get a lesson. One of the things that we try to do with our the online academy is to help people analyse those three skills and then direct relevant videos to them. It's part of the process that we do online. Um so it's it's a difficult one, but that would be my my comment or answer to that. It's easy, isn't it? It's it straight at the right. It's at the right <laughs> speed at the right line. Yeah. It goes in. Um, Phil, yeah. that was amazing. It was very good, Phil. Thank you so Pleasure. much. Pleasure. Thanks for inviting I, me. I feel like I, I could ask you a million more questions. Than I always do when I've got a guest on because I, I just find life certainly in your situation is so unique and different that i feel like it's it, i get to see you at tournaments every now and again but asking some of the questions about how you manage your life how you manage your clients and stuff is always super interesting so yeah. you've been very appreciative of your time yeah pleasure um i'm glad we didn't get any any questions uh blackboard by you by saying nope you can't ask i can't ask that i was expecting a few sort of yeah i mean i got i think i got away with it there actually well due to a part two, the problem is though we'll be driving home i'm like christ i could have asked that yeah. Yeah. and all the comments will be like why don't you ask him this why don't you ask him that anyway phil thanks for your time Pleasure. good luck, good you, luck yeah. for the rest of the tournament with your players and i look forward to uh seeing you get your next player to number one in the world and win many more majors that'd be nice <laughs> yeah and then for everyone listening if you want your confession read out next week um email us podcast at com. Um, our, if you've got a good dear Rick as well email those in and rate us five stars on Apple or like us if you're watching on YouTube see you soon it's alright <laughs>